From Pearl Harbor to the New World Order. That's the compelling subject at today's Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. And our compelling speaker, equipped to address the theme as few others are, is Harrison E. Salisbury. It has been well said that with a crumpled notebook in one hand and a camera slung around his neck, Harrison Evans Salisbury has roamed the world visiting difficult, inaccessible, impossible countries. His life began right here in Minneapolis. He grew up in a sprawling Victorian home on 107 Ralston. For all of the charm and mystery of the place, now, as he says, not a matchstick remains. Salisbury started his writing career at the age of 10 with a seven-page treatise on the start of World War I. In 1925, he entered the University of Minnesota. In 29, he became editor of the Minnesota Daily, got in trouble reporting the truth, but graduated in 1930. He went to work for the United Press in 1930, first in Minneapolis, then Chicago, Washington, New York, London. In 1942, his assignment took him on a 50,000-mile tour of the war zones. In February of 44, he traveled to Leningrad and fell in love, as he says, with the bravery and beauty of that city. In 1949, he went to work for the New York Times. He was assigned to Moscow, where he stayed on the job until 1954. He was there almost six years. He experienced the full impact of what it was to live in Stalinist Russia. His book on that experience, Russia Reviewed, won him the Pulitzer Prize in 1955. In 1960, our guests spent intense quality time in the South as the civil rights movement was on a slow boil. Mr. Salisbury became national news editor of the Times in 62, and later served as assistant managing editor and associate editor. In my mind, his name is synonymous with the Times. In 1966, Mr. Salisbury was the first American reporter permitted to enter Hanoi, North Vietnam. He has a deep interest in China, and under the title China's New Long March, has written a major study of China's struggle out of the wreckage of the Cultural Revolution. And indeed, a new volume is forthcoming very shortly. He was present in Tiananmen Square in June of 89 at the time of the massacre and wrote Tiananmen Diary 13 days in June. The Westminster Forum, in collaboration with the Minneapolis Library and its special autumn series of programs and exhibits dealing with World War II, is very pleased to present journalist, historian, commentator, and yes, Minnesota na native and, as he says, lover of snow, Harrison E. Salisbury speaking on From Pearl Harbor to the New World Order. Welcome home, sir. Well, it's nice that uh, the snow came forth copiously to greet my longing for my native Minnesota as I remembered it. And I, I have no, no complaints on that score whatsoever. <laughs> I'm sorry that it made it difficult for some people to get here this morning, but I loved it. 
I'm going to try and do a little bit of revisionist history under this rubric, which is vast, uh, from Pearl Harbor uh, to a new world order. I think we need it because I'm a great believer in trying to cut right through uh, the rhetoric and get down to the hard nuts and bolts of the world situation. And we are now about 24 hours away from that climactic event, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, one which changed the lives of Americans, changed the world, and changed Japan in the end. I've heard a lot of reminiscences. Charles Kuralt, and I'm sure you've heard many of the programs remembering Pearl Harbor. The dominant note that I've heard in all of these is this sudden attack coming without warning upon a country which was at peace, had no real thought of danger or war, and all of a sudden, out of the sky came the Japanese bombers, and we were propelled uh, by that day of infamy, as FDR called it, into World War II. In a sense, that is true. But if we pause one moment to look at what had been happening in the world, we readily see that this was not an unexpected event, even though the actual mechanics of it may have been a surprise. The world had been in turmoil as we went into the 30s. The world of the 30s was a dangerous world. It was marked by the rise of Hitler in Germany, and everyone knew what that meant. The people of America were certainly not ignorant of it. They were informed, concerned, and worried. The reporting from the scene, the great reporters who told us what was happening, and the president, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who knew very well the implications of the rise of this dangerous man, the rise of a new German nationalism fed by fascism and what it could do to the world. <clears throat> Almost simultaneously with the coming to power of Hitler, Japan began her march in Asia. This, I confess, is not as well known to Americans as it should be. To us, we tend to think of Japan as a danger almost uh, simultaneous with the opening of the war. But Japan had been on the march for years before that. The attack on Manchuria, the steady movement into North China, the attack on Shanghai, one of the greatest atrocities of contemporary, the contemporary world, the massacre at Nanjing, in which some 600,000 Chinese were ruthlessly shot down uh, by the Japanese. This was not unknown to Americans. It was reported vividly and in great detail by the press and by the more primitive radio of that time. 
As we moved up closer and closer to Pearl Harbor, the signs of danger became more and more ominous. After all, World War II broke out on September 1st, 1939, and while it is also true that it began with what many people call the phony war, no action, it was not long before Hitler moved into action, and he moved in a predictable manner. He took over those parts of Europe which were readily accessible to him. He showed no great genius in this. He was in general moving along the lines which had been laid down by the Germans before in World War I. He attacked France much as France had been attacked in World War I. All of this was reported. All of this was known to us. And if I emphasize that, it is because we Americans, particularly in this age, have a, a very short attention span, possibly emphasized by our electronic media, which do a remarkable job for three or four days, and then, bing, another subject comes along, and we follow their lead and forget what they've been saying before. But none of us alive at that time will ever forget the voice of Edward R. Edward R. Murrow and those wonderful broadcasts, This is London. And he was reporting that war in a manner as dramatic as any electronic images ever had. And none of us will forget William L. Shire reporting from Berlin. And we knew the peril that was mounting in Europe. And we could see for ourselves what was happening in the East, in Japan. And we were on the alert. It is wrong to suppose that this was a country peacefully sleeping, worrying about everyday pursuits when the Japanese attacked. We did not expect the attack to come to, at Pearl Harbor. I don't think anyone did. It is true, the code had been broken, and in retrospect, you can go back and say, well, we should have known. Well, perhaps we should. But the attack on Pearl Harbor was encompassed in a broader attack, which was well known. I, myself, as a newspaper man, and pardon me for citing the newspapers, but that's where my life has been. I was the foreign editor of the United Press, and on that evening, of December 6th, I wrote a war lead, a general story, in which I said the Japanese will be attacking this weekend, not Pearl Harbor, but all of those possessions south along the Asian continent, Hong Kong, Singapore, we knew they were in jeopardy, we knew the fleet was moving, we were fearful that the attack would hit Manila and the Philippines as well. We didn't know that one single thing which so roused us to the World War peril. But let's not overlook that it came within the compass of the expectable, even though we did not expect it. We had a pretty good comprehension. And when it happened, startling as the news was, and I think anyone alive in this room will remember where he was and what he was doing when that news came through that the Japanese had struck at Pearl Harbor around something after 2 p.m. on Sunday, 
We'll remember that. But it was not a great surprise that we suddenly were thrust into the war. We were moving into war, and this speeded the process up a wee bit. Nor should we have been surprised, nor should we be surprised today, to know that this was the culmination of a long-standing move by the Japanese. It was a policy which had been consciously adopted. And if we were not, if we did not perceive that, if we did not perceive what Hitler was doing, then we were blind and we deserved to suffer the kind of losses we did suffer because these men telegraphed their punches long ahead. Now when I say that, I want to add quickly that just because these things seem very clear now and seemed clear, I think, to many of us then, that does not mean that our world leaders are naturally gifted with enormous wisdom so that they too perceive those things. I think that Mr. Roosevelt was quite clear on many things. I think that Winston Churchill was quite clear on many things. I do not think Hitler, who was a world leader, was clear on many things. He had many misconceptions of the world. And I know that Stalin, who led Russia where I spent so much time, was very unclear on things. These are not, as a whole, necessarily nice people. And I'm speaking here of Hitler, and I'm speaking of Stalin, and presently I will speak of Mao. These are men with their own political preoccupations, having risen to power because of certain national characteristics, Hitler because of the total collapse of that once great country of Germany at the end of World War I, Stalin because of the agony of Russia after being literally forced out of World War I and the country in ruins and the communists coming in and taking over. Stalin and Hitler, as we now know, engaged in an extraordinary worldwide game of bluff, each coming together in the Nazi-Soviet pact which touched off the actual mechanics of World War II but each with the inner conviction and desire and hope that he could betray the other and put a dagger through his back. That was the kind of man who headed Germany and who headed Russia. We didn't know anything much about Mao at that time, but had we known much about Mao, we would have known that Mao came into power as the deadly enemy of Stalin as well, and was as fearful of Stalin as Hitler should have been. So the world was being run, large hunks of it at any rate, by men with a hidden agenda, but an agenda which could be deduced by close, careful study. We did not do much homework on that, and I would fault all of us, as well as the Western leaders in this, because the fact of the matter is that many of them hoped to avoid war and felt that they had to deal with these men one way or another, thinking that they might escape it. If there is a lesson in this maneuvering which preceded World War II and a lesson which we should derive from Pearl Harbor, it is 
that we must be clear in our minds about the motivations of great countries and the natural aim and axis of their policies and conduct ourselves in accordance with that. And this brings me back to Japan because I do believe that we misjudged Japan to a considerable extent. We didn't see that leap of imagination which the Japanese military took in which they not only progressed along the natural line of aggression which they'd been moving on since 1934 in taking over the Asian continent and creating what they called the East Asian co-prosperity sphere, which really meant a great big empire for Japan, but also that they were prepared and hoped that they would be able to stalemate the United States with a daring, remarkably well-conceived move, which simply didn't take the final leap. They did not calculate on the overall net power of American industry and American willingness to fight. So that they made a miscalculation and we made a miscalculation and it resulted in a tragedy for the world and the death of many Americans and the death of many, many Japanese and, and citizens of other countries. World War II moved on inexorably, regardless of all of these moves, into a conclusion which was not too different from the conclusion of World War I, with the possible exception that England as a world power lost its real rank as a world power in that war, as, as did France. Russia benefited uh, but suffered very dreadfully. Japan lost its status. China moved up a few notches, and the United States, having mustered its force, having suffered these blows, emerged as the great power of the world, challenged only by the Soviet Union. We emerged in that, in that, in that phase without a real understanding of our responsibilities as a world power. Henry Luce, publisher of Time magazine, published a famous editorial about the American century, which opened up, in which Mr. Luce, with a rather grandiose idea, felt that now the United States was supreme and we could call the score in the world. But we could not do it because we were not united at home. We seldom are, except in the actual danger in the midst of war. We should not be, I think, totally united because then we would not have a democracy. A democracy is based on disagreement, and thank God we have that here and we have a democracy. So that we, if it was to be an American century, we couldn't agree on what kind of an American century it was going to be. And we did not, at the end of the war, bend our abilities and our understanding and our study to a, a study of the nature of what the world was at the end of that time. Yes, there was the United Nations. Yes, we put a lot of effort and emotion into it, but it was predicated on the continuance of the World War II coalition in which the United States, Great Britain, France, 
Russia and China would be as one with a unity of war. But anyone knowing anything about great powers or human beings know that when they've been brought, forced together by the exterior force of an enemy, once that pressure is relieved, they go their own ways, even though we might wish that they wouldn't. And so the United Nations, which was to be the world order, failed just as the League of Nations, that great, marvelous ideal of Woodrow Wilson, failed after World War I, went down in flames in the petty greed and rancor among the people who had been allies. And World War II went very much that way. A couple of things happened which laid the basis, and many don't suppose many of you would have thought about it in this way. A couple of things happened after World War II, events which we can now look back on and study with care. The first of these events was the Korean War. We think of the Korean War as something dim and distant. We don't know too much about it. We know that Harry Truman led us into that war. He would not permit the North Koreans to take over the South Koreans. We know in a vague way that the United Nations was involved. And if we've studied it, we may know that the Russians were conveniently absent from the United Nations. And so that war went forward under the banner of the United Nations. And even though Russia was not there, technically speaking, the struggle against the unprovoked aggression of North Korea on South Korea was carried out under the flag and under the principles which we had hoped would be the guiding light of the post-war world. I don't think even when that was going on that many of us realized what a precedent it was setting. And there was many, there was much controversy in many, many arguments about that war, and when it finally ended in a stalemate, Eisenhower had to go over there finally, and we got a stalemate out of it, nothing happened, the North and South Korea still divided, as they are to this very day. <laughs> People began to forget the war very quickly, and they never thought that it was setting any kind of a precedent which we might be talking about today. But it did, because it was the use of this imperfect machinery which had been set up. Now we jump down through a number of years marked by all kinds of controversies, conflicts of one sort and another, and we come down to the present day. We have seen remarkable events happen across the horizon within the last couple of years. We have seen Russia Communist Russia, the very idea, the ideal of Marx and Lenin and Engels and Stalin, suddenly begin, begin to fall apart like the wicked old witch of the West when Dorothy threw that pail of water on her in the Wizard of Oz. Suddenly this great monster on which we had built our whole world attitude the duel of the two titanic powers, the communists and the, the, the Democrats, the West and the East, was over almost before we could realize what was happening. 
This giant began to waste away, and it is still doing that today. It wasted away. And along with it, those problems of Eastern Europe, where the communist rule had been imposed by force, it suddenly turned out that when Gorbachev pulled back the troops, when Gorbachev announced he wouldn't send them in, democracy rose from what many of us had thought were the ashes. We never expected to see that again in our lifetime. And all of a sudden, all of Eastern Europe was trying and is, is still trying to find its way back into a democratic form of government, back into part of the world, part of the world which will be part of this new world order. And in those events, which I still think are, are not really totally appreciated by us because of this short attention span that I mentioned and the ability of television to twist our interest from one thing to another, uh, we don't get the total implication that here we are 200 years after the American Bill of Rights, after Thomas Jefferson, with his doctrine, the doctrine that he laid down, suddenly becoming the hottest political philosophy the world has ever seen, and one which is with ease simply moving right in on the ruins of Marx's flawed doctrine. It is an extraordinary event. It is a kind of event which really requires extraordinary men and women to, to understand and take advantage of because surely the United States where that doctrine uh, was invented and where we have lived with our own imperfect uh, uh, understanding of it, constantly trying to make it work better, sometimes getting two steps ahead and then falling back. Nonetheless, this means that the philosophy of that remarkable group of geniuses who set this country going is now beginning to sweep the world a doctrine which I might say Karl Marx didn't think existed. He thought that he had some respect for Thomas Jefferson because Thomas Jefferson was uh, against slavery, but he believed that essentially the American Revolution was a bunch of wealthy landowners here trying to get rid of British taxes. He didn't think that it was the wave of the future. He thought that wave began with the French Revolution. Well, he was wrong. He was wrong and he deluded himself and he deluded many people and the world has finally reached the point at which that delusion has fallen apart. But the solid rock of this very difficult doctrine, this very difficult mechanism, the one that Churchill said, and I agree with him, he said it's the worst system of government that's ever been invented except for all the others. And there's a lot in that, you know, it isn't, it isn't easy. And it's not going to be easy for the Russians or the East Europeans or anybody else. But they're working at it and they're trying and maybe they'll, maybe they'll make it. I think we haven't helped them very much on that road. We've sort of said, oh, well, great, fellas, see if you can make it. Uh, sink or swim. And I believe that they're sinking quite a bit. But that doesn't mean that we may not somehow or other awaken to this enormous opportunity and this necessity before it is too late. And we ourselves have done something which I don't think we quite understand, but which picks up 
on that point which Harry Truman made when he went into Korea and thereby, for the first time, showed what the United Nations doctrine could be. This last year, within this last year, we have engaged in what I regard as the most exciting, unbelievable event of my lifetime. And I'm not talking about the falling apart of Russia, which certainly was something, but I'm talking about the world unity which was achieved by this country and by President Bush on the question of Iraq in which right across the board, using the mechanism of the United Nations, using it as the founding fathers of that institution intended, world unity was achieved right across the board. When the vote against Iraq was taken, we did not stand alone. We did not stand at the head of a Western coalition. We stood with all the countries of the East. We were supported by the Soviet Union. We were supported by communist China. That key provision of the UN, which provided for unity within the Security Council, worked. And it worked because of what Mr. Gorbachev had done in Russia, and it worked because of, of the falling apart of the Marxist state and the whole world united on this principle that one nation may not aggressively interfere with the affairs of another. And that is exactly what the United Nations was formed, and that was what it was about, and that's what it could not achieve so long as it had a divided world. As long as the great powers were divided, you couldn't get them in that council room uh, to agree on anything. That was done. I will not say that I think that the next step in that, the war, the military operation against Iraq, had exactly the same aura about it. Because I know perfectly well that many of those states which joined with us in condemning the aggression and standing for a peaceful method through uh, boycotts and embargoes of compelling Iraq to move back into the world community did not believe that that war should have occurred the way it did. But it did. It did occur. Mr. Bush went forward from that remarkable unity of the world into the war, which within the sum of 100 hours was said to have achieved its, re its results. Now that also was a dramatic event which has left its mark on the world. I happened to be in Beijing when the actual hostilities began. And through the medium of CNN, and this is another factor you might not think that a television network would be a factor in world politics, but it is. Through the medium of CNN, I saw the extraordinary effect of those American missiles zeroing in and going right down the chimneys of those buildings in Baghdad. I was not the only person who did that. Every top leader in China, 
had his CNN monitor at his desk and was watching it the way everybody around the world was and saw the same event. And when they saw that, as I saw it, I realized that the world had entered a new era of military technology. No longer did we really need to argue about so many things we'd argued before. This was a supreme technology, one which was not likely to be matched quickly by any other nation or group of nations that might possibly resist some dictate of the United States. I do not think that we or our leaders realize to what extent the Chinese, for example, and I think the Soviet also, were there a coherent Soviet government, and some of our allies, what they really think about this extraordinary military technique, which means that without incurring the extraordinary civilian casualties, and I'm not saying we didn't inflict a great many, because we did through many other means, but with these missiles, it is technically possible now for a nation which has those, those missiles to be, for a considerable period of time, at least as long and probably much longer than the nuclear weapon, to be actually the policeman of the world. I don't know that I like that concept. I don't know that that is, should be a key of a new world order by any means, any more than I might think that a nuclear weapon should be the key to a new world order. But we have to recognize the reality that exists. And the people, the leaders of China and the leaders of the Soviet Union, as I said, who, if they can get their attention away from their own terrible problems, can understand that there is nothing they can do to avert that kind of weaponry except move into a new world order. And in that new world order, while there may be one power, the United States, which is a policeman, with the whole world order sitting in on the decisions as they sat in on the decision about Iraq in the first place, I do not believe that we or anyone else with a supreme weapon would be able to dominate the world. I may be revising history a little too much here, but I happen to believe that any forecast of, of history must be based on pragmatic roots. It must be based on the reality of technology. There have been two enormous developments after or toward the end of World War I. One was the nuclear weapon, and the second is this fantastic missile objective. I might add that it makes all air forces obsolete just as the end of the Cold War makes practically all the armaments of the world obsolete. It's going to take a bit before our armaments industry and the Pentagon, which is dedicated to big air forces, big armaments, enormous appropriations, can be moved around to understand that a new order is arising in which these technologies will not be needed, in fact, are no longer cost efficient, to use a term which they like to use. 
And the new world order will have to be perceived by the leaders of various countries, particularly in this country. There is one other element that I must mention, and it also is practically unnoticed. It was introduced by Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter's presidency does not have a great aura about it, but he has introduced into international relations and terminology something which never was there before, and that is human rights. It is now de rigor for nations not to mistreat their own citizens in the kind of callous method that they have traditionally done. You can say, if you wish, that the United States and its associated nations are imposing on the world a new kind of legality which is based on human rights and civil rights, something like the American Bill of Rights for the whole world, something like the, the Bill of Rights that we're celebrating right at this very moment. And I think if you say that, you're coming pretty close to the truth. Because again and again and again, this concept, which was not involved in diplomacy and which we never invoked before, and my God, we have supported some of the, of the cruelest dictatorships that you can imagine. When Carter began to push this forward as a sine qua non for the establishment of friendly and diplomatic relations with, between countries, somehow it has caught on. The Chinese are certainly no great masters in the field of human rights, but they have been pushed into the corner in which they have to justify human rights, and indeed, I would be willing to predict that that will move forward there, just as you can see in the dissolution of Russia, it's moving forward there as well. We'll have to tidy up our own house, I think, in that regard also. So that while I've taken you on this fast and quick tour of many, many aspects of the world and brought in a number of factors which I look at slightly differently from the conventional way, I wind up with a sense of profound optimism that we are moving forward through all of these different tragedies, these different surprises, these confrontations and these conflicts into an area in, of the world in which, with leadership, and I must emphasize that because I don't believe we've had very good leadership here, with leadership, the world can move forward into some kind of a concert that will not, of course, eliminate all war, will not eliminate all problems, but will give us a genuinely base, baseline of human values and a commonality of understanding of what governments must do, both with their own people and with other peoples in the world, that will enable us to move forward to something like these visions which have been shared, at least in part, by all of the statesmen, no matter how they have violated them, they all share these, these precepts to a certain point. And I think if we in this country can share them amongst ourselves, we can go a long, long ways to creating that 
world order that we have all dreamed of. Thank you very much. response, if I may, I'd like to quote you. You have been quoted as saying, if you are going to be a reporter and try to report on the important social, economic, and political events of the time, you almost certainly will be in the front row of history. Well, listening to you for the past half hour, we have been with you in the front row of history, but unlike Pearl Harbor, that didn't come as a surprise. <laughs> We take a moment now, and those of you who must leave the auditorium may do so. Also, you are encouraged at this time to pass any questions to the aisles, and the ushers will pick them up. For our radio audience, let me remind you, if you tuned in late, that you've been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum. Our guest speaker today, Harrison E. Salisbury, historian, journalist, commentator. His theme, from Pearl Harbor, to the New World Order. Uh, Mr. Salisbury, would you be willing to uh, return to the podium, please? And we'll begin to uh, put some questions your way. Let me begin by saying that a month or so ago, we had a Russian composer as our forum speaker, Rodion Shedrin, and uh, he expressed uh, what you might call alarm about the forthcoming winter in Russia. And I wonder, with you having been there so long and knowing it so well, if you'd give us a sense of uh, the immediate future in that country. Well, I share that alarm about the winter in Russia. Uh, it is already well underway in Russia, even though we are still enjoying balmy weather here in Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> and winter in Russia is a long, grim period under the best of circumstances. And it is much more so this year because of the extreme shortages of food, the farmers not having harvested and not having sown many crops, and holding back food for the worst part of the winter when they expect they may get 10 times as much uh, from starving people when they take it to market. Uh, it is very serious. Not only is, uh, is it serious in terms of food, it's serious in terms of, of heat, at services, and uh, almost anything you can think of is in very short supply. Already the queues in Moscow will stretch a block long in front of the bread shops or any place which has anything to sell, and half those people, when they get up to the, to the door, the door is being closed and the stocks are gone. gone. The whole country is in a state of dissolution uh, trains don't run on time. Factories are, turn out half the output that they should. Workers don't bother to report for duty. They sit around and drink vodka. Uh, with conditions like that, the chances of Russia having a, falling into genuine chaos before the end of winter, having riots, having major disturbances, anarchy, goodness knows what, are only too good. They may be avoided by good luck. They pr probably could be avoided if we had a more active policy of trying to get minimum amounts of, of, of 
necessities into that country. But it's very late, mm -hmm. very, very late. So I think that we may see some very serious times. Thank you. Question from the floor. During the recent Soviet coup, you took a very pessimistic view of the ability of the democratic forces to turn back the Stalinists. Why were you so pessimistic? Uh, well, I think with good reason. <laughs> there are an awful lot of Stalinists still in Russia. The, I think that Russia was extraordinarily lucky, and I think uh, a great deal of that good fortune uh, stems from two factors. One was the courage of Boris Yeltsin, who stood up uh, to the, the mob, and the other were the people of Moscow who turned out in substantial numbers around his so-called White House to protect him against any attempt that might be made on his life or to depose him. And once that display of courage was shown, then people rallied behind him and the coup began to fall apart. I think there was another reason that it fell apart, which stemmed from a misunderstanding or a conflict among the backers of that coup, uh, many of whom I suspect thought that they were acting in Gorbachev's behalf, when the fact of the matter was Mr. Gorbachev opposed them. But I don't think we've seen the end of the coups, and neither does Mr. Yeltsin, and I suspect neither does Mr. Mr. Uh, uh, Gorbachev, and I know that Mr. Shabanadze, the new foreign minister, has predicted, as he did before, that there will be another one. I am very much afraid that they're right about this. I'm very much afraid that the next one will be better managed. I'm sure that the bulk of the military will support another coup. Uh, and if it comes at a time when the government is seen visibly to have lost control of things, uh, then the chances for its success would be only too good. A question from the floor. Would you care to comment on the rise of David Duke in USA Today? Well, I, uh, I'm not a specialist in David Duke. Um, <laughs> I did cover uh, the rise of his uh, predecessor, uh, Huey Long. Uh, same country, uh, much the same sort of uh, a uh, political charlatan. Uh, I think perhaps more attention has been given to David Duke than he deserves. Uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a dangerous man, no doubt, but I can't see his having any national constituency unless he's given one. I, I'm not entirely happy with the uh, role of the media in all this. Question from the floor, why does the world sit back while China ravishes Tibet? Well, uh, the question, I don't think the world sits back while China ravages Tibet. In fact, I, I happen to be uh, somewhat in disagreement of the, uh, of the nastiness of the Chinese program in, in Tibet. I know it's been bad, but I don't know that it is, that they're treating the Tibetans much worse or as worse as they're treating some of their own native people. Uh, why does the world sit back on it? Well, uh, you could ask the same question of why, why have we not moved more strongly on the case of human rights in China as a whole? Uh, I believe that we have moved quite strong in relative terms. I'm not entirely happy with Mr. Bush's policy there, uh, but I do think that he's finally getting the message through his head that uh, 
Americans are very uncomfortable with this kind of thing, and they would like to see us insisting on better conduct from the Chinese. I even think the Chinese themselves are getting a little of this, though it's very, very hard to get very much uh, through. Uh, and so I believe that we have to be persistent in all these cases and uh, do whatever we can think of that will try to help uh, push a recognition, a consciousness of what I've been talking about, of the necessity to treat people honestly and decently. I might, if I may be permitted, add one other example where I think we have been remiss, very remiss, and this is in Yugoslavia. I cannot for the life of me understand why we have stood aside and let the Yugoslavs turn on each other in the way they have uh, just because of these age-old ethnic uh, uh, hatreds. I cannot believe that effective, strong action by the United States could have helped out in that situation also. Mm -hmm. Thank you. The morning paper carries the account of a local high school teacher who says that for his students, Pearl Harbor is about as remote uh, as the Civil War and that not a few of his students think of Pearl Harbor as a p place where people dive for pearls. What, what do we do about the history situation in our schools? <laughs> well, perhaps that high school teacher is exaggerating a little bit, although I know myself from talking to younger audiences that much that we take for granted in, a, in an audience uh, with this, the average age of this audience is new territory to young people. And how are they going to know about it unless they are taught, unless we reintroduce history into our schools? And I say reintroduce because history has been practically washed out in favor of something blandly called social studies or God knows what. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we do not teach history, and I, why? I, I can't understand it, and I, I've never been able to get through my thick head any of the answers I've gotten from the schools, or from the teachers, from the academics, and I don't see why we don't, as people, as citizens, or parents, or whatnot, use our influence. We do have influence on, on, the, on the, the academic system, and get them to understand that no nation which forgets its history is going to long endure. Any nation which doesn't know its history is going to perpetuate the same mistakes again and again in the future. It's one of the age-old saws, and it's true. So I think, if, if, I think this teacher should be uh, applauded for bringing it to our attention, but we ought to go and, and help him uh, give some lessons in what actually happened at Pearl Harbor. Thank you. A question from the radio audience. Can you feel optimistic about the New World Order fitting in the Israeli-Palestine or Palestine problems, Palestinian? Well, I'm not going to uh, suggest that the New World Order, which is, is in the very early stages of evolving, is going to immediately solve a basic problem in the Middle East, which has endured for several thousand years. I mean, it's just nonsense to think that that can be done. I admired Mr. Baker when he was shuttling around and going to the Middle East again and again and setting up these talks that he's going to have, but I don't anticipate it's going to solve any great problems. It, so far, they haven't 
he hasn't even been able to get all the participants to sit down in the same room. And that is sort of a fundamental. Uh, so let's not expect that a, any kind of new world order is going to be perfection. It isn't. There are going to be all kinds of problems around the world. They exist there. They've existed for thousands of years, and they will continue to exist. The, the only thing you can hope for is that an apparatus has been set into place, a mindset in which people believe in trying to solve problems. In this country, we have more problems that we're aware of than almost any, but we make them public. We argue about them. We try to work on them, and in that way, we gradually may make a little progress, but uh, I don't expect perfection tomorrow. Mm. Question from the floor. Do you think communism will survive the 20th century in Cuba and China? Uh, let me see. It will not survive the 20th century in Cuba, that's for certain. Uh, it might possibly survive technically in China simply by an accident of long longevity. Uh, I don't expect the system to fall apart until Deng Xiaoping dies. Now, granted, he is 87 years old, and that means that he, if he survives uh, into the next century, he's got nine years to go, and that would bring him up to 96. On the other hand, he has told his friends, I don't see why I shouldn't live to be 100. Well, maybe somebody else will find a reason why he can't live that long. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that you have a geriatric leadership which is clinging on like grim death. And the impression I had when I was there this last winter was that they had in place a system which they believed, a system of oppression, of military, of police, and a new armed police organization they've set up, which they believed would be able to hang on until they are out of the way. Well, that would be just about the year 2000, maybe not quite. After that, no holds barred. Mm -hmm. You have suggested correctly, I believe, according to this questioner, that, that other than lip service, we are providing little or no support for the emerging, democ emerging democracies of Eastern Europe. Given our budget deficits and unaddressed needs, what do you feel we should be doing? Well, there we come right up against American domestic politics, and they are very real. And anyone who says, why should we put money into Eastern Europe when we can't put money to solve the problem of the homeless, the schools, all the things that we have in this country, has got a very good point. But are we sure that we can't? Are we sure that we're utilizing all our resources at, in the most efficient possible way? Are we sure that we need to continue all these enormous contracts uh, for the Pentagon, for all these new weapons systems and things of that kind? Are we sure that we aren't perhaps wasting a little money here or there? Well, I don't know. Uh, are we sure that all the people who should pay taxes, and I'm thinking of those who have perhaps made as much as $10 billion or $20 billion in the last few years, that they have chipped in with everything we think would be fair? I'm not at all sure about that. So I think if we were to tidy up the books and go after some of these rascals and perhaps not throw all our money down the black hole of 
advanced military technology we don't need, we might be able to scrape up a little bit here and there to help out ourselves, uh, our own people who are suffering, and also some of those who suffer abroad. Mm -hmm. Thank you, sir. When we came in here before the program to test the microphones, you said that you could project as much as necessary. And you have projected magnificently, helping us to look at past, present, and future, and to end up with a, with a sign of hope. And we thank you. Thank you. <laughs>